Now I'm on. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2. That's right. We're going apocalyptic today, guys. Yeah. Right, I'm kidding. We are in Revelation, though. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room and the little racks underneath the seats. I told you all last week that, that I don't know what happened uh, whether with the whole large print versus normal print and all that kind of stuff. Guess who messed up? <laughs> so we got normal print. All right. Um, so if you, don't have a, if you don't have a Bible of your own, your own copy of God's Word, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. The, the reason for that is that we believe that God's Word is effectual, and it does what God intends for it to do. And God uses it for the, all these different things, including shaping us individually and as a body called the church. He uses it to, to reveal himself to us. It's like it's the primary means by which he makes himself known to, to us as his creation. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we believe, I believe, that if you take that home and start reading it, uh, like, like God will use it in big ways. And so please take that one home. Um, Revelation chapter 2, we, we started a series all the way back in July on the letter to the Ephesians. And uh, uh, we've, we've been having a great time with it. Um, and so last week, we finished up uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians. And Ephesians has six chapters, and we finished chapter six. And so you're probably thinking, well, aren't we done now? Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, while there's no more left of the letter to the Ephesians for us to look at, that doesn't mean that there's nothing left for us to study in the Bible about the church at Ephesus. All right, So we know that uh, after Paul wrote that letter, a few years after Paul wrote that letter, that he ended up placing Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. So we could honestly spend some time looking at First and Second Timothy because those two letters play out within the context of the Ephesian church. All right? Now, that would take a while, and we're not going to do that. What we can do, though, what we can do is spend one week looking at the very last thing we see in the Bible regarding the Ephesian church, and that's in the book of Revelation. Revelation is a book of the Bible that's complicated. We can use that word, complicated. Um, its genre is what's called apocalyptic literature, which means that it's got this hyper-realistic imagery all over the place that's supposed to symbolize all these other things. And, and so there's a lot going on. You've got you to try to figure some things out. And there's some things that, that are kind of cloudy and don't make sense now, but we're sure they're going to make sense later and all these kinds of things. And, and because it's a complicated book, like there's some people who, who want to avoid it altogether. And then there's other people who seem to really, really like the book, and they got charts and stuff. Um, so complicated is a good category to put the letter of Revelation in. Um, but here's the deal. If, if, you, if you haven't spent a whole lot of time in church, let me give you the, the Cliff's Notes version of what Revelation is. It is a letter written by uh, the Apostle John. John is given a vision of uh, a history to come. All right? and, it's, and it's primary audience. It doesn't mean that there's, there's, there's not other purposes of the letter, but the primary purpose of the letter is to be an encouragement to persecuted Christians at the end of the first century. All right? That's its primary focus. And so John writes this letter to them to encourage them, to build them up, and to give them an idea of who is standing at the finish line. Right? Because they're being persecuted, because they're literally being cast out and beaten for their faith and imprisoned and all these things. They, uh, most of these people that the letter is addressed to have been displaced in some way. And so they kind of have this refugee status kind of thing going on. And so uh, John writes this letter. Jesus gives him a vision of a future reality that hadn't even happened for us yet to give them a sense of who is the victor standing at the finish line. Who is the one who is Lord and conquering king over all? all of 
history. And before you get to all the really crazy stuff in the middle, the first part of the letter seems pretty tame in comparison. All right? John's vision, Jesus tells him to write letters to seven different churches. Seven different churches. And the number seven is apparently an important number in the, in the letter to, of Revelation in the book. Um, like you heard Christy a while ago uh, read from chapter five. And it's got all these seven bowls and seven seals and all these kinds of things. And so seven seems to be this important number that's symbolic of some stuff. And so, uh, so it's probably best to see these seven churches as, yes, literal churches, actual churches, but also standing as representative of all churches everywhere. All right? And so... Jesus tells John to write letters to these seven churches, specifically to write letters to the angels of these seven churches. And there's a lot of debate over what that means. I tend to believe it's a personification of the church itself. But for those of you who have a physical Bible, what does the superscript above chapter 2 say? To the church in Ephesus. So you all ready to look at the very last thing written about the church at Ephesus in the Bible? Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so that's kind of an interesting picture, and you don't know what to do with that, right? So each of these seven letters, this is the first one, but there's six more that play out after this. In each of these seven letters, it opens with a greeting from Jesus that's specific for that individual church that gives us some clues about where Jesus is going with the rest of the letter, okay? And so each of these letters plays out in that way. It's got this special little opening greeting thing that's going to give you a hint about what Jesus is going to talk about. And so it's got this stuff about stars and lampstands. Like, what do you do with that? So what's Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that these churches... And the stars that represent them are in his hand. He's saying that these churches and the lampstands that represent them, he's walking in their midst, right? Jesus is saying that, hey guys, hey, don't forget that these churches belong to me. You're not, you're not, you're not doing your own thing here. These churches belong to me. They're in my hands. Jesus is Weighing their fruitfulness and measuring their value over and against his purposes. And he's going to do with them exactly as he sees fit. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying that these churches belong to him. and He's going to build them up and tear them down for his express purposes. Don't forget your church belongs to me. Look at verse 2. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So each of these churches is given a commendation to. Each of these churches, I say each of these, five of these churches are congratulated on some stuff. Two of them, Sardis and Laodicea, Jesus doesn't have anything positive to say about them. Like, if even Jesus can't find something nice to say about your church, your church has got some problems, right? And so Jesus, he, he commends them for something. What does he commend them for? Well, he, I, would, I would summarize it as sound theology, right? He, he says, hey, you're doing good at this. He, he, you don't just accept the first thing you hear. You put it to the test, right? You, 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 you gauge what you see. You're not just swallowing everything. You, you test things. You test, you test teaching and you test those who claim to be teachers, right? What else does he say? Look at verse 3. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So not only are they theologically sound, but they're also enduring faithfully, right? Like, like remember that Revelation is being written to persecuted Christians, right? And so when he's talking about enduring faithfully, he's not just saying, you're doing a good job keeping the church in order. He's talking to people who may have literally been persecuted, beaten, jailed, killed for standing faithful. And you're holding down the fort well. And can I just be honest? Like, these two things, sound theology and faithful endurance, like, those are exactly the two things that I would want us to be known for, right? Like, there's other things that he commends other churches for, but like, if I were to take my choice, and I, and I know my personality and my passions play into that, maybe you're different, but if, if I got to choose what Nashua Baptist Church was known for, I would want it to be exactly these two things, right? Here Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for a couple of very, very important things. Things that I would absolutely adore for him to commend us on. I want us to be a church that's theologically sound, right? Anybody not want that? <laughs> I want us to be a church that stands faithful, that knows our Bibles well, and puts to test the things we hear instead of just accepting what sounds good on the surface. Anybody else want that? Well, look at verse 4. But. There's always a but, right? Like, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, a but was always good news, right? Because Paul would start out with the bad news. And sometimes it was eternally terrible bad news. Like, like chapter 2, verse 4, he, he unfolds all this stuff. And, we, and it's been several months, but we, we talked about that that, that. that we are separated from God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Right? And he goes through all of that. And then he gets to this but statement. But God does this. He is this and he does this. And he does this for us. Right? And so when Paul uses the word but, it's this incredible turn from bad news to wonderful news but jesus in revelation 2 started out with the bad news or with the good news right he started out with the good news and then threw out a butt apparently jesus is buttering up the ephesian church right before he rips something out from under them right what does he say but i have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus says, you've lost the love that you had at first. There's some debate in larger Christian circles about what exactly Jesus means here. About what exactly he means by that, that first love. The first school of thought is that Jesus is talking about himself, right? That, that he's saying that you've lost as a church your love for me, right? That you've ceased to follow me, you've ceased to, to cling to me. And this is overwhelmingly the most common reading, right? 
Jesus is saying that they walked away from him, that as a church, not as individuals, as a church, they have ceased to cling to him. The second reading, possible reading, some people like to point to, is that Jesus is talking about a love for others, all right? Um, and they'll point to uh, the, the practical love stuff that we talked about throughout our Ephesians series, the back half of the Ephesian letter to do that. Uh, the, the problem with that is, though, it's a major stretch, um, and usually it comes from people who carry a more liberal theology into the Bible, and so they have to define love differently than what we would, and so we're not really even talking about the same thing at, at the end of the day. Um, so I obviously lean towards the first reading, that Jesus is talking about a love for him. But that doesn't mean that love for others is not in view here. You know, those two things don't have to be forced apart, as if they're in, in different universes. We talked a lot throughout our Ephesians series so far that, that to love Jesus like we've been called to love him leads us to a very real and very practical love for others, right? And so when you and I do the first thing right, the love Jesus part right, the second one should naturally follow that. The unavoidable problem in all this is that the Bible teaches about as clearly as it teaches anything else that we never get that first one right. Anybody doing batting a thousand on that one? It's not naturally in me to love Jesus like I ought to. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus brings those who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. The good news of the gospel is that he gives us new hearts. New hearts that are enthralled by him. And are now capable of seeing him clearly. And pursuing him correctly. And want to draw nearer and nearer to him. And when that happens, we don't have to force the other one. It just kind of naturally comes out of us. We don't have to pick between the two. We just have to make sure we don't get the cart before the horse. Get our priorities out of order. And so Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that while they do some things very, very well, they had lost their love for him. And so they could either A, repent and return to him, or B, to use Jesus' words, have their lampstand removed. In other words, Jesus is going to stop considering them a church. Is Jesus allowed to do that? Wait a minute, but what, what if they like constituted and stuff? What if they have bylaws? I mean, shouldn't dissolving a church like be brought to like a three-quarter positive vote for all the active members and attendance provided a quorum has been met? Obviously, we're talking ridiculously here, right? Regardless of whether or not the church at Ephesus existed organizationally, regardless of whether or not they existed on paper, is irrelevant to the fact that when Jesus decides that you're a dead church, you're a dead church. And so the options laid before them are clear. They're clear. Repent or else. What about all that stuff about God's plan being unthwartable? We talked about that a lot during our Ephesians series, right? 
What about all that stuff about when you're called a saint, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks, Jesus has declared you a saint. What about all that stuff about when we're pursuing faithfully and when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow? That's some language that Paul uses. What about all that stuff? God's plan is unthwartable. He does save resolutely. But churches, churches can come and go. Churches can be built up and torn down for his purposes. The good gardener knows how to prune. And so it is entirely possible that a church containing people who are eternally secure can refuse to repent as a body. And when that happens, Jesus has every right to choose to take their lampstand away. And this is the decision that's apparently laid before the church at Ephesus, right? Repent or be removed. But here's what's crazy about that, right? Because the Apostle Paul planted this church. Like, anybody running with a better start than that? They, they get a letter in the Bible. Like, they get the gospel explained to them in ways that are deep. They get some practical uh, lessons for what, what life in Christ and life defined by the gospel actually looks like. Like, we know that Paul was the pastor here at one point, and, and then Timothy later on. Listen, Ephesus is getting better pastoral care and teaching than National Baptist Church ever will. Just plain simple. That church, like that church, is being told to repent. Because by the time that we get around to John and Revelation, a couple of decades after the letter to the Ephesians is written, Jesus is telling them that, well, listen, you, you do some things very, very well, but I have this against you. The reality is, as a church, they have walked away from him. And the choice that Jesus lays before them is repent as a body or else. Look at verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. All right, so um, we're not exactly sure who the Nicolaitans are. Um, like, we got a lot of clues, but nothing really definitive, and so we're, we try to put the pieces together, and the best we can tell is that the Nicolaitans were a heretical sect that broke off from the church very, very early on and practiced what, a form of antinomianism. Antinomian means against the law, uh, and so uh, essentially, uh, they, they would take incredibly sinful stuff and not just say that God can forgive that, but be encouraged to participate in it because God is glorified as he forgives that. Right, so let me paint a weird example for you. It would be like me saying, hey, after we get out of worship today, let's all go on a month-long bender. And we're going to need some cash. So how about we pull some money out of the benevolence offering to do it? You're cool with that, though, right? Because God's grace. Right, that's kind of who the Nicolaitans were. Like, we don't know exactly who they are, but if we're putting the pieces together properly, like, that's the picture that we're getting of the Nicolaitans. They're that kind of group. And Jesus goes, hey, I hear that you hate the Nicolaitans. I hate them, too. Good job. Like, that's what he's saying. He's back to the commendation, right? Like, good job on that one. 
It's, it's a part of their fleshing out what's true and what's not true, right? They know their Bibles well. They're, they're walking deeply uh, in, in understanding what is truth and what is uh, opposite of truth. And, and so, look, they're fleshing these things out, and they see the Nicolaitans for who they are. And so Jesus says, good job, guys. I'm in the same boat. So he kind of sandwiches the bad news between good news, right? It's a bad news sandwich, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Jesus is back to commending them for a second. Look at verse 7, though. He who has an ear, to, who, he who has an ear, excuse me, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To, those who con- to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that phrase, he who has an ear to hear, those of you who know your Bibles well, you know that that's not the first time you've heard that, right? Jesus says that a lot. It's all over the gospel accounts. It's all over the place. And Jesus kind of uses it in these line in the sand kind of moments, right? He who has an ear, let him hear. The reality, though, is that there are a lot of people who don't have an ear to hear. And so they don't hear. This goes back to that spiritual reality we were talking about last week, right? It's it's not just those who can make sense of things. It's not just those who put all the pieces together properly. There is a spiritual layer to this that goes much deeper than just the surface level stuff that we tend to see. Jesus says that the one who conquers, they'll get to the finish line. And just like with the greetings... Each of these letters has a promise tied to that specific church that would have been special for that specific church. It's in, it's in all of these letters. It's a really beautiful thing if you ever flesh out all the letters together. Uh, but to the, the Ephesian church, he, he talks about a tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what's going on with that? Well, the symbol for the ancient city of Ephesus, or one of the symbols, it may not have been the only one, but one of the symbols for the ancient city of Ephesus was the palm date tree. We didn't talk about that much in our, in our structure stuff for the series, but it's, it's in there. All right. um, the palm date tree. And the Ephesian version of Ephesus, there, there was a Greek version of Ephesus and there was an Ephesian version of Ephesus. The Ephesian ver- version of Ephesus was kind of most known for being the goddess of fruitfulness. There was other things attached to it, but that was kind of her main deal, the goddess of fruitfulness. And if you were to look at a statue of the Ephesian goddess of Ephesus, all right, uh, her statue uh, if you saw a picture of it, it had a bunch of bulb things around her midsection, right? And, and over the course of history, some people point at that and say, oh, that's, that's a specific type of, uh, to be representative of female anatomy, okay? And then later on in history, there were some others like, eh, I think it's probably more likely to be a representative of male anatomy, right? And so you got all these bulbous things that mean certain things, you know, attached to fruitfulness. But now, a lot of people are starting to go, hey, you know what? That kind of looks like a bunch of dates. That kind of looks like a clump of dates right there, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Which is certainly consistent with the city of Ephesus and the culture there. It's consistent with the idea that, that she was the goddess of fruitfulness. And for those of us who know and love and trust our Bibles, believe them to be true, it is incredibly consistent with a letter in Revelation 2. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, those who get to the finish line, those who repent and come to me, return to me, conquer. What's awaiting them is a tree that has fruit that is far sweeter and far more fulfilling and far more eternal. 
than anything pithy little Artemis could ever offer you. You don't understand what you're walking away from. Don't walk away from me. I can provide far deeper than what Artemis can provide. And those who conquer receive an eternal reward. That if the church repents and comes back to him, they will receive fruit that pays off on an eternal scale. And that opens the door for a question that we need to ask ourselves this morning. How are we to respond to God's word as a church? We talk about it on the individual level a lot, but how do we, how do we just respond to God's word as a church body? Because the letter is written to a specific church at a specific time in history, and he, and he spells out specific things they're good at and specific things that they're terrible at. And, and so it's got a historical context to it. So how do we, as a, another church, a couple thousand years removed with our own quirks and, and, and pros and cons and all these things, how do we, as a church, respond to God's letter to that one? If I were to sit down and just kind of tabulate things and Spell out the things we're good at and spell out the things that we're not so good at. Like, I think we would look more like the church at Ephesus than any of those six other churches. Right? The stuff I said that, we, that I would love for us to be good at, it's not like we're bad at that. We're, we're taking some big steps into pushing deeper theologically, to, to pushing deeper into us knowing our Bibles well. Like, we're, we're taking good like big steps sometimes, pushing into those things. And so like, like if we were to list off our pros, I think we would look more like the church at Ephesus than any of the other churches that, that Jesus lists out in these letters. And so if our propensity is to look more like Ephesus in the good stuff, do you think it's possible that our propensity is to look more like Ephesus in the bad stuff too? And don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not going for indictment here. I, I don't think that that's true of us right now, and I, I certainly don't think that as a church body we've walked away from Jesus, and so I'm not laying that out here today. But if it's possible for us to look most like Ephesians, uh, Ephesus, uh, in the good stuff, it's absolutely possible for us to look most like Ephesus in the shadows, coming down the pipe. And it's possible for those shadows to draw a little closer and closer and closer if we don't pay attention to some stuff, maybe. But even if, even if there were zero similarities, like even if we were more like Laodicea or Sardis or, or, or any of those others, even if there were no similarities at all between us and, and Ephesus, a point we have to take home this morning, a point that we cannot Avoid the church at Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. There, there is no church at Ephesus. Jesus told them that all the great things that they were known for was worthless if they didn't repent and return to him. That if they didn't return to him, that their lampstand would be removed. 
Now, this is the last thing we see about Ephesus in the Bible. So we don't know if they responded well to this, child, to this call or if they responded poorly to this call. But e- like, even we throw out the hypothetical. Let's say they responded incredibly well, and then just later down the line, they had another problem creep up. Like, let's just assume for a second that they said, absolutely, Jesus, let's go, we're in, we repent. And then later, years later, they found another problem. Eventually, their lampstand was removed. The church at Ephesus is no more. It is entirely possible, entirely possible for us to get a lot of things absolutely right and still miss the most important thing. It is absolutely possible for us to nail some really important stuff around here but still miss the boat on the thing that is necessary. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary, but, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, if not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Oh, may we always check our hearts and realign ourselves with our first love here. Because those shadows won't stay shadows if we don't pay attention to them. So how do we respond individually this morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means you press into God, right? You do that by asking tough questions of your heart and of your actions. And listen, it is easy, easy to create ruts and fall into those ruts of spiritual routine. It is easy to surround ourselves with the appearance of godliness, but for our hearts to be far from them. It's easy because all it takes is for us to be really good at a couple of very important things, but not pay attention to the primary thing. There's, there's levels of importance to things here, and we can be astounding. We can be the best church in our region at, at options B, C, D, and down. And we give the appearance that we got everything handled. But without the primary, without Jesus himself, we're doomed. So your response this morning can be to press into your first love. Press into the one who loves you and has called you for himself. Not all these other things. For himself. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I say it all the time, but I hope you, you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. We believe that gospel will change you inside and out. We believe seeing Jesus as who he is will forever affect you. You, you can't just walk away from that. But we hope that you find this to be a safe place to, to try to process through that as, as God saves you. That's, that's what we think he's going to do. All right? But listen, you can respond today too. You do that by meeting the one 
who stands as the victor over all of history. The one who's not impressed by or fooled by religious actions, he sees right through them. He wants you. He wants to give you himself. You receive him by repenting of your sin and following him as Lord. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to talk and pray with you if that's helpful for you. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for Revelation 2. And I'm sure there's more we could flesh out of there. But it's uncanny how closely we look like Ephesians. It's uncanny how closely we look like a church that had a lot of things put together. But struggled on some other stuff. God, where we see things as a church body that call us to repentance, would you help us respond as a body? Would you see, when we see things that you call us to repentance on as individuals within that body, would you help us walk in repentance and obedience? God, would you draw us closer to yourself because that is the only thing that matters on an eternal scale here. That is the only thing that will matter at the end of all this. Thank you for the stuff we're good at, but... The, I can take it or leave it if we lose you. God, would you save people this morning? Would you open up hearts to know you? Would you help us all respond to your word today? In your name we pray. Amen.